pray that you bless it. May it reach as far as it needs to reach, God. May it serve those that need it most. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, got a lot to cover today, a lot to cover, so uh, no introduction. Week four, Jonah, last of Jonah, let's go. I hope you know uh, it's not a children's book, we got that down now, after three weeks, we said it every week. A, children can get some, a child can get a bunch of stuff out of this, but you're not going to get everything it's trying to do, it's, it's, it's that deep. Uh, one of the things that's going to happen today, and it happened last week, I and mean, if you were here last week for Sam's message, he brought attention to it, but in chapter three and four, and really the whole book, there's... There's something, a technique the author is doing to bring ambiguity on purpose. And so while I explain that, I'll let uh, Christian Bale stare at you. Um, Jonah wants to poke at you. It almost wants to tease you. It wants to sneak in behind you and subvert your expectations. And one of the ways it does this is it'll, it'll leave a crumb for you to follow. And it's up to you whether or not to follow it. It will also... Explain something in a way that you could interpret it in two ways. Now, sometimes when the Bible isn't clear on something, you need to keep, keep doing some research and study to come up, what, like, what is the author trying to communicate? But in Jonah's case, he's intentionally leaving it unclear. He wants you to decide. Remember those, like, choose-your-own-adventure books? Sort of like this, like, where do you want to go with this? Fortunately for us, we have categories for this as modern people, because movies do this often. They leave something open on purpose, and they want you to almost decide what is going to happen or what's going to occur. So uh, this is a picture from the uh, last Batman trilogy, the last Batman series. We won't count a couple of those subsequent uh, movies that had Batman make some guest appearances in. Uh, But the Dark Knight trilogy ended with the hero, Batman, going in like the bat plane with the bomb and blowing up, and he dies the hero's death. Now, if you didn't see it, that's, that's okay. Just know that Batman goes off and dies a hero's death. He takes a bomb and it explodes. And you're left to think that Bruce Wayne, Batman, is dead. However, at the end of the movie, Alfred, his trusty sidekick, is at a restaurant. And he looks off in the distance right before the credits roll up, and he sees Bruce Wayne, Christian Bale, Batman. And more than that, if you could kind of see the back, there's a woman with him. That's now like a reformed Catwoman. She's, a good, she's good now. She got baptized. And they're, they're having dinner, and Alfred's like, Master Wayne could finally live the life he always deserved, just a normal life, not chasing bad guys and getting beat up all the time. Now, the question for you, and the credits roll up, the question for you as, as the watcher of this movie is, is this reality or is this a grief-stricken Alfred imagining the closest thing he had to his son finally being happy. And it just leaves it, and then the credits roll, and you don't know. One of the best movies to do something like this was, <clears throat> you know this? Inception? Inception, I'm not gonna even get into this movie, it's, it's 
it's weird, it's bizarre, it's got a deep plot. Needless to say, the main character goes through the, the dream world, the subconscious minds of people, and he travels through them and does stuff, and that's the whole entire movie. But one of the ways he, dis, he knows whether or not he's in the dream world or the real world is he has this little top, this totem that he spins. And if it spins forever, keeps going, then you know you're in the dream world, because in the real, real world, that eventually runs out of energy and it falls over. So the last scene of Inception, the good guy, the main character, like, is finally with his kids, and he's going to go out inside and play with them. It's all going to be so happy, happy ever after. And then he spins this, and he walks away. And then the movie does a great job at this, if you've seen it. It's spinning, and it's like, well, well, I know, it's it's not stopping spinning. And then it looks like it's going to tip over, and it's like a magical little wind gets it going, and it kind of wobbles. And you don't know if it's going to fall or stay spinning. And then the credits roll. And you have to decide, is he in the subconscious world, the dream world, or is he in the real world? It just leaves it open. Jonah does this stuff a lot in small ways, and then we're going to see in a massive way. And it's up to you to decide sort of what exactly is occurring. But the author is doing this on purpose. It's not like choose your own adventure, and whatever adventure you choose is right. He wants you to choose something, and if you don't choose certain things, it's not revealing something about Jonah, it's actually revealing something about you. So, fast review, because today is the last week of the book of Jonah. If you're just joining us, we've been in here for a few weeks, and I want to do some review. Some of you are tired of this review, but it's going to help us connect the dots for chapter four, which by far is one of the top ten weirdest chapters in the entire Bible. That's where we're going today. So, brief review. Chapter 1 begins, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and we've pounded this for three weeks in a row, it's essential to understanding the book, Jonah's name in Hebrew means dove, Amittai, his dad's name means truthful or faithful one, and so Jonah is presented as a prophet of God who is a dove, which represents peace in the scripture. By the way, doves, uh, some of you might know this, they usually uh, mate for life, they're monogamous, they're faithful. Doves are faithful. He is the faithful one, the son of the faithful one. He is the prophet sent to send a message of peace to the Ninevites. Nineveh is the Assyrian capital. The Assyrians are the bad guys of the ancient world. Nineveh is their capital. So God basically tells Jonah to march on into the Death Star and tell the emperor and Darth Vader that they are wicked and they need to repent. That's what's going on. And Jonah, you're led to believe, is going to be the faithful prophet. He's going to be like Luke Skywalker at the end of the return of the Jedi. I won't fight you, Father. I'll lay down my life for you. Nah. Jonah is not buying it. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And you're left at the beginning to think, well, because Jonah's afraid. Jonah doesn't, I mean, who wants to go to the the Ninevites? They'll kill him and torture him. But as the story progresses, you realize he actually doesn't want the Ninevites, to come to repentance. He doesn't want to see them receive reconciliation and grace. So Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh. So he goes down to, this is critical, he goes down to Joppa, a port city. And from Joppa, he leaves to Tarshish. Tarshish is 2,500 miles away from Joppa, and Tarshish is on the coast of Spain, so it functions symbolically as the literal end of the world for ancient people. So Jonah goes to the end of the world to escape the presence and the will of God. 
He leaves Joppa and doesn't go to Nineveh. He leaves Joppa and goes to Tarshish. Now, um, in trying to escape God, he realizes that he can't escape God. So uh, God sends a big, giant fish to swallow Jonah up. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. As he's in the belly of the fish, he says a prayer. God hears his prayer, and God answers him in a wonderful way by having the fish vomit him up on the shore. Jonah finally at this point says, I will obey God, and I will go into the city and preach to the Ninevites that they need to repent. This is chapter 3. Sam preached this last week. And uh, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. Jonah says a five-word sermon. In Hebrew, it's five words. Five words. And we were joking around about it, how like how much South Valley Community Church people would love if we could be effective like Jonah and his brief. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's five words in Hebrew. Forty days, Nineveh shall be overturned. Now, the Hebrew word for overturn here is hapach, and hapach can function in a positive or negative way. Hapach means to overturn or to turn or to flip over, but it, it could just mean to, like, turn something. So, like, you flip a burger, you can hapach a hamburger on the grill. It doesn't have to be bad, and this is, this is that ambiguity thing. The author has Jonah preach a message that says, hapacha's coming. And that could either mean a repentance, a turning, or it could mean a destruction, depending upon the response of the people. So hapak, turning over of the city, can either lead to ra'ah in Hebrew, destruction, calamity, or it can lead to Hebrew word shuv, repentance which is sort of a cool thing that's going on with the words because hapak means to turn. And if the people of Nineveh turn, as in they repent, shuv, they will find a turning from God. God will turn from his anger, he'll relent. Additionally, the word uh, repentance in Hebrew, shuv, literally means to what? You guys know what repentance literally means in the Bible? To turn around? So follow this, it's like, a turning is coming, hapak. And if you shuv, repent, turn around, God will, niham in Hebrew, turn from his anger. So it's all this language of turning. And it's almost up to you when you read Jonah just saying, yeah, the hapak is coming. You got to say, well, which type of hapak? And I wonder what Jonah wants. I wonder what God wants. You know what I mean? That's, it's kind of leaving it open. Well, the Ninevites um, all repent. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God nihams, he turns from the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He didn't do it. This is where chapter 4 begins. One of the most weird passages in the Bible. And I'm sure there's some children's books out there that include chapter 4. I just haven't seen them. I'm sure you might have one or two. But usually the children's books end at chapter two and sometimes three, but never four. And if they include number four, uh, bring it to me because I want to see if they cut out <laughs> what they cut out. Okay, chapter four, this is weird. This is crazy. 
Nineveh repents. Darth Vader and the emperor are now born-again baptized Christians. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you get this? Jonah's like, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew you would do this, God. I knew you're in this forgiveness business. There's all this talk about like God in the Old Testament is so, so angry and prone to wrath. No, in the book of Jonah, Jonah, it's the human beings that are the ones prone to wrath. He's complaining to God, I knew it. I knew it. God, you're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. You're a abounding in love, steadfast love, slow to anger type of God. You have no right to forgive them. Do you know what they've done to our people? Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know how they've treated Israelites, your chosen people? What they've done to our men, our women, our children? God, you have no right. And I knew, I knew it when you sent me there that you would forgive them. It's his complaint against God. Now in doing so, Jonah actually quotes the Bible to God here. Because this whole part about God being a Gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love God. This is actually the John 3.16 sort of of the Old Testament. This verse describing what God is like appears over a dozen times in the Old Testament. It first appears in Exodus. And God says, I am a gracious God, a merciful God, a steadfast love God. So you got to, like, Jonah's all angry, and then Jonah quotes the Bible back to God. And then more, more interesting than that, Jonah quotes a part of the Bible where God is talking, and he throws his words back at him. This is fascinating, though. So anyone know where this section first appears, this gracious God, merciful God, slow to anger? In what book of the Bible did we first see that? It's the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, around the time Moses receives the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up the mountain, and God gives him the law. And when God gives Israel and Moses the law, you have to think about it in marriage terms. This is a covenant, and from that point forward, God is in a covenant relationship with Israel, which he will describe as a marriage. Israel is the bride of the Lord, the bride of Yahweh, and he is the husband, he is the groomsman. So there's an initiation of the covenant. This is marriage night. This is the night of the wedding. Moses gets the Ten Commandments, and he goes down, and what's occurring? Israel is worshiping a golden calf, and the Bible later informs us that they're more than just worshiping the golden calf, they're actually practicing some sexual, sexual fertility rites. They're committing sexual morality. Now, do you see this? What's the night? It's the wedding night. It's the night of the covenant. In other words, on the night before the wedding, Israel is being an unfaithful bride and committing adultery. By the way, what's the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament? Death. So according to the law in the terms of the covenant, Israel deserved to die on day one. Does God kill them? No. What happens? 
Moses has to hike back up that mountain, and he gets the law again. And when he gets the law the second time, God says, hey, Moses, you need to know something. I am a gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love God. In other words, Israel exists because God was merciful and gracious. In other words, Jonah is breathing at the very moment he quotes that passage to God because when that passage was first spoken, God did not bring judgment on a people who were worthy of death. Do you see that? Jonah breathes because God gave him mercy. He gave Israel mercy. You breathe at this very moment because one has given mercy to you. You didn't deserve it. And so Jonah quotes this, and the story wants you to kind of read between the lines. He's not even aware of this. Jonah is complaining that the Ninevites aren't judged, and he quotes a Bible verse that's directly tied into the judgment of Israel, and Israel's receiving grace and forgiveness and mercy rather than judgment. I mean, this is beautiful storytelling. It doesn't get any better than that. Like, that's good. Okay. So Jonah's cranky. He's mad at God. He's quoting the Bible to God. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you think Jonah's like a little bit overreacting here? This is what bitterness will do to you, by the way. The rest of the world will think you're crazy, but you'll feel justified in your bitterness. You let bitterness go on and on and on and on, it'll make you want to die. Some of you know that. You don't work on bitterness. You say, I would rather die than see this happen. I would rather die than see that person succeed. That's what it'll do to you. Verse 5. After God asks him a question, do you, well to, do you do well to be angry? No response from Jonah. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till, till he should see what would become of the city. Another little kind of ambiguity in the story. It doesn't say exactly why Jonah is going to post up. He, he leaves the city and goes outside of the city walls and it says... He wants to see what would become of this city, but you're sort of like, what do you mean what's going to become of this city? I thought God forgave them. Jonah prophesied what? In 40 days, judgment is coming. In 40 days, Hapak is coming. So it's almost like the story wants you to think, is Jonah going to go wait 40 days to see if their repentance lasts? And just maybe he'll see some fire and brimstone come down? Or maybe when he finally sees God forgive them and not uh, relent from his anger after 40 days, then he'll just, just be totally done with God. We don't know. But Jonah goes and posts up, and he's like, I'm going to wait 40 days and see what happens. And he wants to die at this point. He's that bitter over this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's weird. It's okay to think parts of the Bible are weird. This is weird. It's like, 
all these questions like, what type of plant grows that fast? You know, and how, how, what type of plant can grow that fast and give you so much shade that gives you so much joy? It's weird. Now, we're modern people, so this is the problem. Modern people begin to ask modern questions. Yeah, well, what type of plant can grow that fast? And what type of plant has big enough leaves to give him shades? And how could it grow that fast? I, I got to look in, in my, my books to, to identify. Those are modern questions. Those are scientific questions. You want to know, you want to know how can a plant possibly grow that fast? God raised Jesus from the dead. He could make something have some miracle grow nutrients in it that grow fast. <laughs> However, as long as you're wondering those questions, you've just stepped outside of the story in a way you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be in this story, not going, well, I wonder what, 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 what type of plant, what type of nutrients are in the soil. You've stepped, you've removed yourself from the narrative. All you need to know is that a plant grew up and it gave Jonah shade. And he's exceedingly glad because of it. What was he like in the previous verse? I want to die, Lord. I'm so angry I want to die. And now he got a little bit of shade. Celebrate. Come on. He's like, happy. You go like, what's up with this guy? This guy's whack. Jonah is whack. What's wrong with this dude? And you go, oh, have you, you know, have you ever been like that? Oh, woe is to me. It's like one little good thing happens and it, your whole world changes. It's like a toddler. A toddler is melting down, having a breakdown. You want a cookie? <laughs> you know? It's like a whole new world opens up because of a cookie. That's Jonah. What's going on here? Okay. And this is great. This is even more weird. It's great, though. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. What did God appoint before? <clears throat> a whale, a big fish, dog. Now he appoints a little baby worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Are you kidding me, Jonah? Like, as a reader, you're doing, this dude deserves to die. <laughs> like, he's, look, I've had my bad weeks and months and years, but I've, like, not been within, you know, plant, I want to die, plant, I'm happy, no plant, kill me. <laughs> and it's better for me than to die, better for me to, to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Because Jonah's upset about the plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. That sounds so childish to you. Even the way it's phrased, it sounds, I, yes, I am angry enough to die, mom. It's like, you know, it's, that's what it sounds like. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand 
from their left, and also much cattle. You're supposed to laugh. You're supposed to laugh. It's supposed to be funny. Because Jonah cares about a plant that was there for a day and gone the next. And God's like, look, there's 120,000 people. Even if there was no people, there's at least cattle, there's animals. Don't they matter more than a plant that's here today and gone tomorrow? And Jonah's just, he's fuming. He's upset. He's so filled with bitterness and anger, he'd rather die than see these Ninevites come to repentance. You know, he's quoting the Bible to God. He's, he's saying, I knew it. You, you let me remind you, God, who these people were. They are the Ninevites. They torment people all across the land. What have they done to Israel? What have they done to your so-called beloved people? How dare you forgive them? How dare you offer them forgiveness? And in doing this, you, like me, are getting, like, I'm, I'm over Jonah. Jonah is this immature, foolish prophet. He deserves huh, what Nineveh, Nineveh repented. The king of Nineveh, sackcloth, ashes, they go down into repentance. They seek forgiveness. I get Nineveh receiving forgiveness of God. And now all of a sudden, the twist of the story is the prophet of God is the baby foolish prophet in the story. And you're just going, this guy's a bum. Take him out, God. You know, bring that east scort, that wind. Let it rain. And now Jonah has exactly, has you exactly where he wants you. See, he was luring you along. He was luring you along the whole way, giving you little hints. Oh, Jonah, saved in the well, sees the pagan sailors come to the Lord, delivered from the well. God is patient and kind and patient and kind and patient and kind, and he never listens. He never obeys. He's foolish. He complains against God. This is the guy who should get taken out. And the moment you think that, you bit the lure, and Jonah got you. C.S. Lewis said, a man is never so proud when striking a pose of humility. See, what was Jonah's sin? He, he did not think the Ninevites were worthy of forgiveness. And in reading this book, slowly but surely, you begin to root for the destruction of Jonah. You become guilty of the very sin Jonah is guilty over. You want to see him taken out. You want to see him finally shut up, you know? He's been whining and complaining for four chapters. Jonah got you, man. This is how the book ends, with a question. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's the ending. It ends with a question. Like you want to go, what's Jonah's answer going to be? How, is Jonah finally going to repent? Is Jonah finally going to see how great and wide the love and mercy of God is? Is he finally going to get it? That's the question for Jonah. And then the book ends. But you have to realize that question is not for Jonah or for God. Because this isn't about Jonah. This book's about someone else. This book's about you. 
you're the Jonah. Do you understand how great and wide the mercy of God is? Do you know that God is a gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love God? Do you know that? Do you know that God wants to save his enemies? And do you rejoice in the fact that God wants to save his enemies? Or do you quietly wait under the shade outside of the city? I'm just waiting for God to take them out. If you're like me, you can be honest. I do that all the time. Especially what's like stuff going on in our culture all around. I go, God's going to get them. He's going to get them. Now, that's not to say that justice is, is bad. God's justice is a good thing. But God loves mercy, grace, reconciliation, and repentance more than he loves bringing down the law. God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. He will not let the wickedness go on forever, but he does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. It's like, oh, man. Now, this is something our culture is in desperate need of because our culture has zero doctrine of atonement. We don't have a doctrine of forgiveness. We don't have a doctrine of reconciliation or atonement. This is what I mean by that. As Christianity has lost influence in in the Western world, things that are bound up with Christianity also have lost influence. So things like forgiveness, reconciliation, offering an olive branch, those are going away. So currently in our culture, we do, we do things like this. We look for something you did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and if we find out you said something or did something wrong 20 or 30 years ago, we won't come to you privately and ask you about that. We will publicly bring it out and we will call for your public crucifixion. This is, this is what our culture is doing, left and right. They want to find something you did wrong. There's no room for grace. There's no room for forgiveness. Crucify this person. And that's been heightened because of the political climate. This happens in politics, and then it filters down. You want to find something out that your political opponent did years ago, years ago. And then when you find out, you're going to crucify him for it. No, no room for grace or forgiveness. Now, hear me again. Justice is good. Christians are justice people. We want to see God's justice reign. But our primary inclination should be for the flourishing of other human beings. We want to see people receive grace and forgiveness, and we want to see their soul flourish. We don't want to see fire and brimstone come down upon Nineveh. But what do we do? Our culture finds what you did wrong and then rubs it in your face, smears you for it. And even if you know, then they'll try to force an apology out of you. And if you were to apologize, then, then it's not accepted anyway. There's no atonement. There's no forgiveness. I'll give you an example. This perfect example. Some of you might know this. Okay. It's a funny story. Okay. This is a college football game. It's like a break. The announcers are talking about the game. On the right-hand side of this screen, there's a sign. Someone's holding up a sign, okay? It says, Bush Light Supply Needs Replenishment. Venmo, Carson King, 25. Raise your hand. Do you know this? Anyone know this? A couple people. A few people. Okay. So, you guys didn't laugh because you're acting like you don't know what that's taught. He's asking for beer. Bush Light. 
Say, hey, man, college student, Venmo me, send me some money so I could buy more beer. Okay, and he just appears right there. That's it. Now, guess what happens? People start sending the dude money <laughs> for beer. They're going to replenish his supply. They're Venmoing him money. That's the beauty of technology. You hold up a sign, <laughs> my Venmo account, man, send it in. Money starts coming in. Thousands of dollars start coming in. Tens of thousands of dollars start coming in. He reaches $800,000. And he goes, okay, wait a second. Now, I don't know, I don't know, this, I don't know what's going on in his mind, but at a certain point, let's just, let's just go back. Say it's $10,000. You're going, should I keep this money? Am I legally opted to buy that much beer? Or can I just, <laughs> can I just buy a house? Well, Carson King, at the $800,000 mark, roughly, uh, says, I'm going to donate it all to a children's hospital. And give it all away. Then, the beer companies get word of this. And they say, we'll do matching funds. Okay? So now this guy, Carson King, 25, it's probably, you probably point out your phone and give him money. Stop it. Okay, so he's, he's getting money, and he's going to give it to the children's hall. This is a good dude. Okay, so the Des Moines Register, it's the local newspaper, uh, says, oh, um, we want to send one of our, our journalists to do some research on him. And the guy to your left is named Aaron Calvin. He worked for the Des Moines Register, and he sa- does some background checks on this dude. Because, you know, of course, when someone gives away a million dollars, you want to make sure if they did anything bad in their past. So he finds a tweet from almost a decade ago. It was an inappropriate tweet. Offensive tweet. He posted it when he was 16 years of age. 16-year-old. By the way, for you 16-year-olds in the room. One. What's the thing that says, like, diamonds last forever? Diamonds don't last forever. Your tweets will last forever. Uh, and uh, it was offensive, so uh, they do what, our, what we do in our culture. You know, some people think it was politically motivated. It doesn't matter. It's not important. But when you find something out about someone, you go, let's write a story about how, look at how immature this 16-year-old kid was and what a mature young man he's become, giving away millions of dollars to... No, no. Crucify him. They publish it. They write the hit pieces, and now this guy who's going to give a million dollars to Children's Hospital uh, is being attacked, being harassed. They dox him. You already know his name. You know his Venmo account. Um, the beer companies remove their matching funds. Now, if you're like me at this point, I'm looking at this dude who did the research that got this guy in trouble. Look at him. Smile, I don't like his smile. I don't like his hair. I don't like his jacket. I don't like anything about this dude. It's like, this guy's just trying to do a good thing. You're going to ruin him? What's wrong with you, dude? Seriously. Then, the payback. Someone did some research into that dude's tweets. <laughs> the register is aware of reports of inappropriate social media posts by one of our staffers. An investigation has begun. He was fired. 
Do you get it? <laughs> yes. I hope he's ru I hope he's ruined. I hope he can never get a job at another newspaper for the rest of his life. Do you get it? Justice is a good thing. We want justice. But as Christians, our first inclination is, man, what type of place is that young man in that he's finding happiness in taking out someone who's trying to do good? God, that's a broken, wicked man. May you send a Jonah into his life? No, no, no. That wasn't your first reaction, right? Not mine. I didn't like his. I don't like his. I don't like anything about that dude. He's <laughs> got a nice, pretty smile. Reminds me of Drew Dowler. I don't like him either. <laughs> you see how the lure of Jonah works now? It gets you. Now, again, Christians, we want to see justice served, but our first bent should be the same trajectory of God. Lord, save, save that person. Send someone their way to change their life because I was just like him. I was the same person. Why should we take that attitude? Because our God is a gracious God and merciful God. He's a slow to anger God, abounding in steadfast love God. Israel should have been taken out on day one. But they weren't because God was a gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger, abounding, steadfast love God. Jonah should have drowned in the ocean when those sailors chucked him over. But he didn't because God is a gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger, abounding, steadfast love God. And the world has an ability to offer forgiveness. Christian, you have the ability to teach a world about forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation. This is something our world desperately needs. There's something fascinating occurring, and we didn't plan this. Oftentimes this happens and people think like the teaching team is all figuring out all these calendar things and making them align, and that's not the case. Uh, the book of Jonah is read at the climax of a 10-day celebration of Jewish High Holy Days. Now, this began with the... With the Jewish festival or, or high holy day called Rosh Hashanah. Now, Rosh Hashanah, it begins it and Yom Kippur ends it. Rosh Hashanah began last Sunday. Yom Kippur is this Tuesday. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. And during the day of atonement, Jews for at least 1,800 years minimum have read the book of Jonah as a part of the liturgy. The Day of Atonement. What do you do? You read the book of Jonah. Why? Because if God can forgive the Ninevites, God can atone for anyone's sin. You, me, anybody. And let me tell you, this world is in desperate need of the message of Yom Kippur, that there is a God who is merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And no matter how far you went down into the belly of the beast, no matter how far you went down to the bottom of the ocean, God still hears your prayers. It's a message our world desperately needs to hear. And they need to see Christians 
embody the love and forgiveness and atoning work of the God we follow. There's many examples of this in history, tons. Just want to talk about a couple. Uh, this is a picture from a few decades ago. Some of you remember uh, in Ireland when there was uh, all the, the conflicts with the IRA, the British ruling over them, the IRA was fighting back. You, need to, uh, you don't need to understand all the political climate, but you need to know this. There's a man named Gordon West Wilson, who was a Christian man who opposed violence, opposed violence on all ends. And he went to a celebration called the Day of Remembrance. It's where everyone gathers and remembers the soldiers that were lost in World War II. And on the Day of Remembrance, the IRA planted bombs at the location where the celebration was going to occur. And uh, Gordon Wilson attends with his family. The bombs go off. The buildings collapse. The buildings collapse upon Gordon Wilson and his daughter. And as they both become conscious, Gordon Wilson can hear his daughter. And he reaches through some of the rubble and he holds her hand. And he says, baby, are you all right? The daughter says, yes, dad, I'm fine. And the dad, what a relief. And then he hears his daughter scream. And he goes, daughter, baby, baby, are you okay? She goes, yes, dad, I'm okay. A little while longer, he hears another scream. And this time his daughter says, Daddy, I love you so much. And those were the last words from his daughter he ever heard. A couple days later, he's in a hospital bed recovering from his wounds, and the BBC come in and ask him some questions, an interview. You know, wonderful journalist, a man just lost his daughter in two days recovering in the hospital. Let's do an interview. And they ask him about it, and Gordon Wilson says, I bear no ill will to the people who did this. I will not hold a grudge. I will not be bitter. That will not bring my daughter back. But, however, I will pray every night for the men who did this that God would forgive them. I will pray every night that God will forgive them. Now you can imagine, after these bombs went off, the climate in that area. Do you remember when the bombs, when the planes crashed in? To, how many of you were like, I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to go fight. I'm ready to, you know, just as kind of a natural reaction. You're like, no, let's go get the guys who did this. What Gordon Wilson's words did is it diffused the situation the president said afterwards, Wilson's words, they shamed us all and caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we have all become used to. I want to pause right there. They sounded so different. Different than what we've all become used to. Christian, you are to be different. You are put here on earth to be different. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we have become used to. Have we become used to some things we shouldn't be used to? They sounded so different. They brought a stillness with them 
and they carried a sense of the transcendent into a place that has become so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But Gordon had his detractors, and unbelievable, he was re- and unbelievably he was received he received bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive? People demanded. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? How dare you forgive? Does this sound familiar? How dare you forgive? Because the forgiveness that the world needs is a forgiveness that everyone thinks they don't want, but they're in desperate need of. I'm going to show another brief clip. Probably 80% of you have already seen it, but there was a perfect example of this this week, right? Filled with controversy as well, because there's all kinds of issues about racism and justice and lenient sentencings and then it became even more controversial because some of you know last night it was announced that one of the witnesses in this case was killed last night so this is loaded with controversy loaded with problems however at the core is a young man brant jean who will go on to forgive the woman who murdered his brother Now, when I first started watching this, I watched like 15 seconds of it, and I go, this dude's got to be a Christian. This dude's got to be a Christian. Because there's a mercy and a grace that does not come from your heart. It comes from the Spirit of God. It comes from the Spirit of God. And it enables you to do things that you never thought you'd be able to do. And so there are all kinds of issues surrounding this. It's problematic. But at the core is a man who does this to his enemy. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone but... I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. 
that young man is the Jonah we don't deserve. He's the Jonah we don't deserve. But that's the thing about forgiveness, right? You don't deserve it. So when people say, so-and-so didn't deserve it, you go, that's right. They don't deserve it. Someone has to absorb the weight of that. Someone has to absorb the penalty of that wrong. That young man is the Jonah we don't deserve. Now, there's something interesting that takes place in the Gospels. It's very interesting. Hundreds of years after Jonah, Jesus is asked a question by Pharisees and Sadducees. And they come to him and they're trying to trap him. Matthew tells us this, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, an evil, adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So they left departed. You don't get a sign, Pharisees and Sadducees. All you get is the sign of Jonah. Now they in that moment were probably going like, what? What do you mean the sign of Jonah? Now, after the fact, you go, oh, it's because Jonah goes into the whale, the big fish, for three days, and Jesus is going to die and be buried for three days, and then he's going to come up out of the grave. And if you answer that way, you're right. There's, some, there's something more he's doing. Because Jesus is the master. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to die three days. Why are the Pharisees and Sadducees so upset with Jesus? There's a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is Jesus is going around offering grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation to the people that the Pharisees and Sadducees do not want to see get saved. Jesus is going to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's going to the people that no one wants to see saved, saved, and guess what's happening? The Ninevites are repenting. So Pharisees and Sadducees, the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah. Now, a few verses after this. Okay. For the rest of like these three minutes, I hope you realize how awesome the Bible is. This is incredible. A few verses after this, Jesus takes his disciples and he asks them a question. Who do you say that I am? Some of you are familiar with this, right? Someone answers. Who answers? Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? What is Jesus' response? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon bar Jonah bar is Aramaic for son. Blessed are you. Now, in one sense, it could just be Jesus. You, this is Peter's first and last name. But nowhere else does Jesus really is going around calling, hey, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. But in this case, he wants to use the last name. And what's interesting is just a few verses before, you had the sign of Jonah. So Jonah, if you're the reader, Jonah's on your mind. You get the sign of Jonah, and now there's a son of Jonah here. It's really interesting. What happens after Jesus tells Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. What does Peter do? Jesus, come here. That will never happen. You will never suffer and die at the hands of those filthy sinners. We will lay down our life 
before we allow you to suffer and die. That's not going to happen. You're the Messiah. So when they come to arrest Jesus, what does the son of Jonah do? Takes out a sword and attacks one of the soldiers, chops off an ear. What does Jesus do? He heals. Do you get this? Jesus heals his enemies. Jesus heals the people who are going to crucify him. The son of Jonah wants the sword for them. Because the son of Jonah, Peter, you, me, none of us were ready for what Jesus would do. No one was ready for what Jesus was about to do. Because Jesus was going to go to the cross to die for those guys, to die for the enemies, to die for the sinners. And so Luke tells us that when Jesus is crucified, two others were there who were criminals, who were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know their right hand from their left. No one was ready. The world wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. You weren't ready. No one was ready for God to die on a cross between two criminals and say, Father, forgive them. It's a forgiveness that we think we don't want, but it's a forgiveness we're in desperate need of. Remember the son of Jonah, Simon, the son of Jonah. He would later understand this message. He would go on to be one of the the greatest apostles, preach the gospel all around the world. But the book of Acts records something that's, that's fascinating. This is, okay. In the book of Acts, there's a guy named Cornelius. Does that name sound familiar to some of you? Cornelius is a Roman centurion. Worst of the worst, Darth Vader, the emperor, Roman centurion. Cornelius gets a vision from God and says, you need to hear the gospel, but in order to do so, I need to send you someone to preach to you. So there is a man who will come that you must send for, who will preach the gospel to you, you Roman centurion. And do you want to know the name of that man? Peter. Do you want to know where Peter's at when he gets the message to go preach to the Roman centurion? Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Sin, therefore, to come on. (laughs) Peter, the son of Jonah, is in Joppa, and he gets called to preach the gospel to not the Assyrians, the new empire, the Romans. And it ain't just a normal Roman, it's a Roman centurion. Come on, man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. Many people are there, not just Cornelius. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So when I sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now get this, is beautiful. And yes, as you can begin passing out communion. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. God writes the best stories. And the thing about God is he just doesn't write them in the fictional world. God writes these stories into human history. The dove, the son of the faithful one who would not go to Nineveh, would later have a son who would go to the Romans from Joppa and preach that there is no longer no partiality. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, male, free, male female, slave nor free. And that there is a Jesus who offers peace like a dove to all people who are willing to repent and follow him because he is truly Lord of all. Come on. It's like, you ready to take communion? Like the Bible, come on. There's nothing better than this. As we go through these books, I hope you realize there is no better, no better stories, nothing better than the Bible. doesn't get any better than that. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. As we take communion... I want us to focus on three things. What does the book of Jonah teach us? First, there is no room for racism in God's church. There's no, you Ninevite, you Jewish person, you white, you black, none of, none of that. There's no racism in God's church because Jesus is the one who offers peace to all because he is Lord of all. Two, book of Jonah teaches us there's no one beyond forgiveness. Because even if you're the king of Nineveh, God will send you an olive branch. Three, there is no place for pride. Christians can't look down upon anybody because we are like Jonah. We're just like him. But instead of giving us judges, judge, uh, judgment, the Lord gave us peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. So let's stand and take communion and enter into worship. On the night Jesus was betrayed, on the night his followers are taking up swords, Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. As long as you take this, Pledge, my death, pledge to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so, Lord, we promise to proclaim your death and resurrection to the least of this world until your return.